TUC Radio San Francisco. Time of Useful Consciousness. Dr. James Hansen is the best known among only a handful of scientists who had the foresight and courage to issue early warnings on global warming and climate change. Hansen is director of the NASA Institute for Space Studies in New York City, a division of the Goddard Space Flight Center. He was trained in physics and astronomy in the space science program of Dr. James Van Allen and did early research on the properties of clouds on Venus. Since the late 1970s, he has worked on studies and computer simulations of the Earth's climate in order to understand the human impact on global climate. Dr. Hansen was elected to the prestigious National Academy of Sciences in 1995. The president of the academy called him recently one of the most productive and creative scientists in the world. Hansen is one of the few climate scientists who has consistently warned that the impact that humans have on the climate is bringing about changes that are faster than we ever believed and may be irreversible if action is not taken now. In spite, or maybe because of that reputation, Hansen has run afoul of government censors since the 1980s when he was asked to testify before Congress. He found that the record of his testimony had been rewritten. His testimony to Vice President Cheney and other cabinet members in 2001 was ignored. The most recent effort to censor him began after a lecture at the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco in December 2005. In the talk, he said that significant emission cuts could be achieved with existing technologies, particularly in the case of motor vehicles, and that, without leadership by the United States, climate change would eventually leave the Earth a different planet. Officials at NASA headquarters ordered the public affairs staff to review Hansen's coming lectures, papers, postings on the Goddard website, and requests from journalists. When NPR tried to get an interview with Hansen, they were told they had to find someone else. Dr. Hansen said he would ignore the restrictions and went public in the New York Times. He said that this was an effort to prevent the public from fully grasping recent findings about climate change. Communicating with the public seems to be essential, he said, because public concern is probably the only thing capable of overcoming the special interests that have obfuscated the topic. In December 2006, Hansen came back to San Francisco to give another talk at the American Geophysical Union. Given the experience he had there the year before, I made it a point to attend his lecture and asked him for an interview. He gave me 20 minutes right then and there. To get away from the noise of the conference, we stepped out onto the roof of the conference center in downtown San Francisco. Dr. James Hansen's remarks on climate change are, maybe appropriately, 
heard over the roaring noise of the San Francisco early morning rush hour. I began by asking James Hansen about the censorship he experienced at this very place the preceding year. In 2005, December of 2005, I gave a talk at the American Geophysical Union. It was uh, a talk in honor of Dave Keeling, the scientist who measured carbon dioxide beginning in the 1950s. And I, I think the distinguishing thing about the talk was I connected the dots all the way from the measurements of carbon dioxide to the climate effects and to the causes of the changes in the atmosphere and what would need to be done in order to avoid dangerous level of climate changes in the future. That apparently caused some consternation at um, the press offices of NASA and um, as a result I was told that any future talks I would have to inform them about the uh, talks beforehand and I'd have to get approval for any contacts with the media. Does that last till today? No, uh, there, I was prevented from talking to uh, some of the media. For example, National Public Radio was told that they could not speak with me. They would have to speak with someone else at NASA headquarters. But after this became uh, reported in the New York Times, the NASA administrator uh, said that scientists should be able to speak uh, freely as long as they do so in a responsible way and if they want to give their personal opinions they should clearly identify them as personal opinions. So I have felt uh, free to say what I like now but the fact is that many government scientists are still prevented from talking about topics that are considered to be politically sensitive and global warming is certainly one of those. Going back to your own life, how many years did it take you to recognize the issue of climate change and then finding a way to prove it and then going public? I've been working in climate change for several decades, beginning in the 1970s, so about three decades. Uh, but what has changed recently is the realization that we are much closer to dramatic climate changes than we realized even five years ago. For example, we did not realize until recently that previous warm periods, the previous so-called interglacial periods, some of which were warmer than the present one, were not very much warmer. At most, one degree warmer than the present period. On the other hand, there were times, if we go back three million years ago, when the Earth was about three degrees warmer, but it was a different planet. There was no sea ice in the Arctic, and sea level was at least 15 meters higher, probably about 25 meters higher. That's 80 feet. I mean, that's a huge climate change. It's something that we really would have a very hard time dealing with because we've set up all of our uh, infrastructure with the coastlines where they are now. And also, a warming that large would have a huge impact on many species. It would drive uh, many high latitude and high altitude species to extinction. So we really cannot afford, we really don't want to have a climate change of anything like that magnitude. That's an, another thing that has become very clear in the last uh, 10 years. It, it had been argued that there are 
various problems with the measurements of temperature change. Uh, but what has become clear is the global warming that is occurring is um, it's largest at high latitudes, it's larger over land than over ocean. It has all the characteristics that we expected for a forced climate change due to changing atmospheric composition. And it's not at all like uh, urban warming or the, the things that were used to challenge the reality of global warming. It's become very clear that it is a real warming and it's due to changes in atmospheric composition. What has the advent of satellite observation and satellite data added to your research? There are some incredible measurements that are now made by satellite which really uh, give us a completely uh, new understanding of some processes. For example, just in the past three years there's been a satellite called GRACE, which is a gravity satellite. measures the gravity field of the Earth to such a high precision that we can see the changes in the mass of the ice sheets, such as on Greenland. It had been argued that Greenland is probably getting bigger because there's more snowfall in a warmer climate. But in fact, what the satellite showed is that last year, Greenland lost 200 cubic kilometers of ice. So indeed, uh, the ice, ice sheets are melting as the planet gets warmer. On a philosophical scale, I find it really mind-boggling how the falling apart of the Earth systems is so carefully documented by data. We now know more about these processes than we ever did. Yes, it's good that we now have better, more accurate ways of measuring what's going on. And, and what it's showing is that things are changing rapidly. And if we want to preserve a planet resembling the one that we inherited from our, our fathers, uh, we're going to need to change the course of our emissions into the atmosphere. And in fact, there are uh, other reasons that it makes sense to, uh, to do that. And I think we still have time to do that, but unless we begin to make changes this decade, it's going to be very difficult to preserve a planet similar to the one that we inherited. In your talk just now, you referred to half a degree Celsius that is still in the pipeline, regardless of what we do. I missed the date by which you expect to see that half a degree warming to occur. Yes, because the ocean has large thermal inertia, it takes it a long time to respond to changes in the heating. And there's still about half a degree Celsius global warming that's in the pipeline just because of this slow response time of the ocean. Some of that warming, more than half of it, uh, should occur within a few decades, but part of it will take uh, more than a century just because the ocean is, is very deep and it turns over very slowly. I found it curious to see presentations at this conference that talk about recent cooling of oceans instead of warming. Where do you stand on that issue, and why do you think there's this discrepancy? Yeah, the upper layer of the ocean cooled slightly during the period 2003 to 2005. That's normal to have fluctuations up and down. You need to look at the longer-term record, and on the longer term, the warming is consistent with what's 
calculated in the models given the changes in atmospheric composition, et cetera. Uh, one of the interesting things is that deeper ocean is now getting warmer, which is not surprising because as we warm the surface, the rate of formation of deep water at the high latitudes is, is decreasing. And that causes the deep ocean to, to warm because normally it cools by the formation of deep water at high latitudes. So it's a complicated ocean atmosphere system. And the changes that we're seeing, uh, I think, do make sense. And, but there's a variability from year to year just because it, the climate system is a nonlinear, chaotic system, just like the weather. It's going to fluctuate warm and cold, and uh, we have to look at the long term in order to really understand what's going on. Yeah, when I tried to grasp what the Gulf Stream, the thermal haline, is all about, I realized what an amazingly complex churning and moving vertically and horizontally it really is. And I wondered, are we any closer to understanding the huge circulatory systems of the oceans? Oh yes, I think we understand overall the circulation of the, of the ocean uh, reasonably well and we can in fact model that in our computers and we can look at how that changes as, um, as the atmospheric composition changes and that's one of the reasons that we're concerned about having too large a change in atmospheric composition because we could affect this very large overturning uh, ocean circulation. You said in one of your papers that carbon dioxide is not the only greenhouse gas and that there are other gases that contribute to global warming as well. Yes, it's very important to recognize that it's not only carbon dioxide. There are other gases, methane being the second most important, and tropospheric ozone, which is a pollutant. And in addition, there are particles like black soot. And one of the things which I think is very important is that Although it looks like the Arctic is now beginning to lose its ice, and there's the prediction that we will lose all the ice in the Arctic by 2040, but in fact, some of the non-CO2 climate forcings are particularly effective in the Arctic, and we could reduce those easier than we can change carbon dioxide. There's going to be some increase in carbon dioxide even if we try to use energy more efficiently, but we could reduce methane which in turn would reduce tropospheric ozone, and we could also reduce uh, the black soot particles. If we do that, then I think we can retain the sea ice in the Arctic. How do we go about reducing methane? Methane has a number of sources. Landfills are one of them. You can design your landfill so that you capture the methane and then use it as uh, natural gas for heating purposes. In addition, there's methane lost in uh, fossil fuel mining, in coal mines. And again, that can be captured and, and used as a fuel. So we need to uh, pay attention to the various sources of methane and, and reduce those. And that would go a long way towards saving the Arctic. One of the issues that were dealt with last year at the Hadley Center in the UK was a comprehensive description of the feedback mechanisms, and methane was one of them. The recent releases of tundra-bound methane in Siberia that's caused by global warming have already been measured. 
You know, as we look at the history of the Earth, we realize more and more how important feedback processes are. That's one of the reasons that I argue that we had better keep additional warming less than about one degree, because we know that in the previous interglacial periods that were warmer by up to one degree, the feedbacks were there, but they were moderate. On the other hand, if we have warming of two or three degrees, we're almost certainly going to melt most of the tundra, and that's going to release methane, and we get then can get a very strong positive feedbacks, and we may get a system that's really out of our control. Do you want to say something about feedback systems in the ocean? Yeah, the ocean is another important source of feedbacks. Now, the ocean is taking up about 40% of the carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere. But if the rate we put it into the atmosphere continues to increase, then one of the feedbacks is that the ocean will become less capable of taking up uh, CO2. And uh, that will provide a positive feedback in effect and we'll get still more warming. And what about feedbacks by the ice sheets, the Greenland and the West Antarctic ice sheets? Yeah, the ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica contain enough water to raise sea level many tens of meters. Greenland has about six or seven meters of sea level. West Antarctica has another six or seven meters, and East Antarctica has about 60 meters. The West Antarctic ice sheet and Greenland are particularly vulnerable. They're beginning to show signs of increased melt. If we have warming of uh, more than about a degree, I think it's likely that we will lose both West Antarctica and Greenland. The issue is how long will it take? It had been thought that it may take millennia, but the more and more data that we get, we find that ice sheets in the past have responded quite rapidly. There was meltwater pulse 1A about 14,000 years ago. Sea level went up 20 meters in 400 years. Well, that's one meter every 20 years. And that was with a forcing much weaker than the human-made forcing. So there is a real danger that we could set uh, in motion disintegration of the Greenland and especially the West Antarctic ice sheet and get changes quite rapidly even this century. You are listening to an interview with Dr. James Hansen, one of the few climate scientists who has consistently warned that the impact that humans have on the climate is bringing about changes that are faster than we ever believed and may be irreversible if action is not taken now. We are talking on the rooftop of the conference center in San Francisco during the morning rush hour. What you just mentioned reminds me of the data that we're getting from ice cores that give us such an amazing, like frozen in time image of what happened and how fast it happened. Yes, the, the data that we get from the ice cores in Greenland and Antarctica is, is remarkable. One of the things that it shows is that climate changes in the past, when we go toward a warmer climate, they happen very rapidly, much more rapidly than as we go toward a colder climate. 
And the reason is positive feedbacks. If you start to get warmer and begin to have melting, then the, the ice becomes darker. Wet ice is much darker and absorbs more sunlight and it melts faster. And as the ice sheet begins to get smaller, uh, then the surface lowers and so it's warmer. And so there are multiple positive feedbacks which can accelerate in a warming phase. You mentioned 10 years a little while ago, not millennia, not 100 years, but 10. Yes, because if we look at the Earth's history, we realize that, well, one degree warming is something that perhaps we can deal with. But more than that, it's beginning to be really a problem. And the problem is we already have additional warming in the pipeline. If we continue with business as usual, then carbon dioxide emissions by 2015 will be 35% larger than they are in year 2000. And it will be impossible to get onto a scenario that keeps warming under one degree. Last year, the 10-year time limit by which action is needed was set at the G8 meeting and it was pretty much ignored. So I've been deducting, we're now at nine. That's right, because I argue that by 2015, that's when we're 35% higher in our emissions if we continue on business as usual. So we've really got to get the attention of the public now because it takes time to make the changes in the infrastructure. It's, it's very unfortunate that this global warming story is cast as a gloom and doom story because in fact it's not a gloom and doom story if we decide to deal with it. There are many benefits in cleaning up the atmosphere and reducing the emissions and reducing our dependence on fossil fuels because that's a source of a lot of problems and in fact it is possible to have improved technologies that use much less energy and to develop renewable energies and this will produce high-tech, high-paid jobs. So the only people harmed are the uh, people who are strongly trying to influence the discussion, some of the existing fossil fuel industry. But for the people at large, it would make sense to begin to make the changes that are needed. I tell young people that they had better start to act up because they are the ones that suffer the most. Uh, many of the changes will take time, but we're setting them in motion now, and we're leaving a situation for our children and grandchildren, which is not of their making, but they're going to suffer because of it. So I think they should start to act up and put some pressure on their elders and on legislatures and begin to get some action. What are the turning points in your career when you became aware of climate change? In the 1970s, I proposed an experiment for Pioneer Venus, a spacecraft going to Venus. And I was very fortunate the experiment was selected and was in the process of being built when I was asked to, to help with calculations for the uh, possible warming effect of some trace gases other than CO2. And in doing so, I realized that, well, it's not only carbon dioxide, but there are other things that humans are doing to the atmosphere. We are going to see the effects in our lifetimes. So I realized that it's more interesting to look at a planet that's changing than uh, to study one that's not. And, and of course, there are practical um, social implications of that. So 
I just became intrigued by that and I actually resigned as the principal investigator on the Venus experiment and one of my friends uh, took that over and I've worked on this problem ever since. So that's when you got the first inkling of a major systemic issue there? Yeah, in the middle 1970s it became clear that the atmosphere is changing fast enough that it's going to have effects that will become apparent during our lifetimes and I think that they are becoming apparent now. And they're going to get even larger in the next decade or so. So what gave you the courage to speak out? Yeah, it's always uh, a question. If you speak out, then your ability to do the science is going to be handicapped. But there were certain times, uh, for example, when I was to testify to Congress in the 1980s and my testimony was changed by the administration, it just pushed me too far and I decided to make an issue of that. It was somewhat similar last year, in the, and I realized that if I didn't make an issue of it, then I was going to be very handicapped in my ability to uh, present any results that the public would uh, pay attention to. You heard an interview with Dr. James Hansen, recorded in December 2006, at the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco. Hansen is director of the NASA Institute for Space Studies in New York City, a division of the Goddard Space Flight Center. He's a member of the prestigious National Academy of Sciences. Hansen has worked on studies and computer simulations of the Earth's climate since the 1970s and was one of the first scientists to describe the human impact on and responsibility for the global climate. His research has been censored or ignored by recent administrations. Only a year earlier, National Public Radio's request to do a similar interview with Hansen was rejected by the NASA administration. Come back for the second program in this hour, an interview with Herman Scheer, chairman of the World Council for Renewable Energy. As member of the German parliament, Scheer has helped bring about programs for solar, wind, and other renewable energy programs that are unique and exemplary. Visit TUC Radio's website at www.tucradio.org. That's tucradio.org for more information. Please find a pen to write down a phone number for information on how to order an extended one-hour CD or audio tape of this event. This program is also available as film on DVD and includes the interview with Herman Scheer. TUC Radio is free to all radio stations. Your CD, tape or DVD order is our only support and essential in keeping us on the air. Call us toll-free anytime at 877-TUC-TAPE for information on how to order. You can get your tape, CD, or DVD with James Hansen by mail or credit card by phone or on the web. Our toll-free phone number 877-TUC-TAPE translates into one. 
1-800-273-8273. Time of useful consciousness is an aeronautical term. The time between the beginning of oxygen deficiency and the loss of consciousness. Time for the pilot to save the plane. My name is Maria Geleuden. Thank you for listening. Give us a call.